Hello and welcome to another episode of Blood on the Rocks. I'm your host, Akshay Taylor, and today I'm once again joined by Hannah Barton. Yay! Well, uh, thank you for having me back. It's great to be back. You're welcome. I really needed the guest yesterday. <laughs> You're like, can you do it? And I was like, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> I like weird things, so it, it's, it's useful. What are you going to be talking about today? So I'm going to be talking about um, neurological explanations for supernatural phenomena. Because my degree was computational neuroscience, so I was like, eh, I'll fit that in somehow. I have to do something with my degree. I paid like eight grand for it, so <laughs> I need to do something with it. <laughs> I mean, I think so far my use of my degree on this podcast was about a caving accident. So there you go. And I didn't it's even, useful. I, and I barely talked about the rocks, honestly. <laughs> you weren't like these. These were some bad rocks. <laughs> I mean, that's essentially as far as I got. <laughs> <laughs> Awful rocks. They were yep. mean. Episode 4, by the way. <laughs> Go back and listen to it. <laughs> Self-promotion on your own podcast. Hey. <laughs> okay, so, and I'm going to be talking about, uh, well, we, I'm going to take us to Russia. Great! Yeah. And talking about gulags. And by gulags, I mean one particular gulag. Just one? Yep. Just one gulag. Yeah, because um, it's an interesting one. I, I don't doubt this. <laughs> yeah. And that one's called the Kengi Elk Rising. I look forward to it. Yes. So, what are you drinking today? Oh, I am drinking Rockstar Energy Drink because it's, it's not it's not late enough for me to start drinking. <laughs> it, it's yeah, it's three in the afternoon. <laughs> it's I, five o'clock somewhere. <laughs> yep. I'm having a banana bread beer because I'm. It's fruit. I'm tired. <laughs> it's, it's fruit. Bananas are fruit. I did work out here. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, it's alright. I've been productive. It's okay. <laughs> Reward yourself. With some beer. Too fair, it's a Friday. That is very true. It's fine. Yeah. No one has to get up tomorrow. And if you do, I'm sorry. Today, we're going to be playing a promo for True Crime Finland. So it has some great cases from Finland, uh, some of which I were completely new to me. Uh, and I've listened to a fair few of them now and I've been enjoying nice. Super cool. You should go listen. I will um, do. Yeah, so. And so cut. should you. <laughs> yes. So, cut the promos. Minna from True Crime Finland. Ah, Finland, so peaceful and safe. There isn't even any crime there, right? Wrong. Join me every two weeks in discovering the dark side of the land of a thousand lakes. Everything from human trafficking and Ponzi schemes to double homicide and child abuse. From the forgotten and lesser known to the legendary and infamous Finnish cases, the podcast will be sure to offer something for everyone. You can find True Crime Finland on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Podcast Addict, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back. Yes. So, you said you wanted me to go first, didn't you, Helia? Well, we could do mine first, but then if I have to head off... That works, yeah. Yeah, cool. Yeah, so, 
I'm going to be talking about, um, as I said before, neurological disorders as an explanation for supernatural phenomena throughout time. Obviously, um, supernatural phenomena has been going on for centuries, but we haven't really learned much about the human brain until like the last hundred years or so. So all of a sudden, these um, crazy, weird things that we thought were really abnormal turned out to be perfectly normal and have reasonable explanations for them. But, but yeah. that still doesn't mean they're not kind of weird still. Um, so the first one I'm going to talk about um, is actually one that is really close to my my heart is um, changeling children. Have you, do you know about changelings? Yes, uh, from folklore at least. Yeah, so they're from um, a lot of Germanic folklore, Irish. Um, so they're from a few different countries, but mostly it's Ireland, Scotland, Wales, uh, Scandinavia. Um, and changeling children are from folklore and fairy tales. Um, and they describe a child who exhibits a sudden and remarkable change in their behaviour and or appearance. And it's supposed to be the supernatural explanation centuries ago was that fae folk, fae folk would um, steal the human children and replace it with one of their own, which would explain why suddenly they're exhibiting weird behaviours and they look different. Yeah, I, I'm... <clears throat> I'm quite I'm quite familiar with changing folklore, so I'm excited for you to tell, tell us the rest yeah. because uh, it's fucked up. Yeah. So um, the modern day explanation for it is that we, or it's theorised that changing children were actually just children with autism, and it's very close to me because actually my older brother has severe autism, so I'm going to be like as sort of factual and not sens- as sensitive about it as I possibly can. Mm-hmm. Um, because also it was quite um, traumatising for the families back then as well. Um, so especially if you were pe- from peasant uh, peasantry background um, and you were required to do an awful lot of labour and you couldn't really take time off and you all of a sudden have this child who is um, taking up more of your resources than a normal child would do. Um, it would lead to a lot of stress in the family, which I think uh, helped to perpetuate this supernatural stereotype. It helped people without an explanation for it suddenly explain and put blame on something else for their child's behaviour. So there are plenty of tales um, of babies being stolen from cradles and replaced by fairies. So these fairy imposters would seem to be most common, like I said, in Ireland and Scotland, Northern Europe. Yeah. So they were, for anyone, so obviously living like today, the idea of someone just coming into your house and swapping your baby out for an identical baby is it's weird. <laughs> mm, it's like we we don't really believe in that anymore. <laughs> I think there's a film about it recently called think, Changelings. There is a yeah, there's a film called Changelings. Um, I actually found that out like today. <laughs> so you learned something new. I too um, did my research today. Yeah. <laughs> um, so telltale signs that um, a fairy had replaced their child with one hmm. with your child. Um, included incessant crying, refusing to settle, unusual facial features or curiously distorted limbs, constant feeding at the mother's breast and without ever seeming to be satisfied. Um, so these are all quite common traits uh, found in early symptoms of autism. Yeah. Um, and changed in babies were responsible for an awful lot of... Um, or they were blamed for an awful lot of uh, ill fortune for the poor, sort of the host mm. family. It's like... Listening to it nowadays, like those are perfectly not, like things to happen. Yeah, yeah, like, like there's a perfectly perfectly good reason for it. Um, so obviously at the time they had to think of a reason as to why why is a random fae t- taking my child. <laughs> they had to mm. um, 
put a reason behind this behaviour that they were observing. Um, so human babies could be taken for many reasons. It could be to replace um, an ailing or an unattractive fairy child or the, to get the child to gain strength from drinking the human mother's milk. They often um, put it as a way to uh, punish humans for their mistreatment and misrepresentation of the fairy demeanour. So often fairies were portrayed as being very evil. So some yeah. people thought that um, the fairies were going, hey, no, we're not. Have a fake baby. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what I've heard. I've heard, I, I've heard, a, I've heard another, the other version. What, what's, what's the one you've heard? Where they're just where they're taking it because the uh, fae can't because fae can't reproduce something. Like that. Oh right, yeah, and they're just placing it with an older fae that already exists who's dying is quite no, common. No, it's um, in, they replace it with a doll of sticks and clay. Oh yeah, they have like a, um, a wood or like a lump of wood or candle wax or something. Yeah. yeah. It's it's been quite a while since I've uh, read it, but it's something like that. It's literally just them stealing children and le- and just le- yeah. leaving a doll there. And, like yeah, because it was so like, unresponsive. They were like it'll um, be enchanted though. They had some really weird methods um, for dealing with how to put this um, scaring away the fae uh, to deter them from um, taking their children. One of them. Um, well, it's supposed to be quite commonly known that um, fae have an aversion or an allergy to iron, to like pure iron. Yeah. So one of the methods for deterring a fae from your baby was to hang an I- a pure iron pair of scissors above your baby's bed, just pointing straight down at your child. <laughs> that makes sense. But um, also, you just put scissors above your child's bed. <laughs> this is true. It's not safe. Don't <laughs> no, do that. No. No, we're um, not advocating that, that. No one do this. That would be because, um, what's the word? Like, they are um, weak to iron or something like that. Yeah. Like, which is why you have horseshoes knit above houses and stuff like that. Because, yeah, like um, lucky it, horseshoes and stuff. Because the iron is meant to ward off Fey or something like that. Something along those lines. It's been a while. Yeah. Um, so, the parallels between the changeling folklore tales and autism have been. Uh, noticed by some writers looking at the history of the disorder of autism, um, and some of the features of those stories in, like, of uh, folklore, including like the health and beauty of the human child and the change after some period of normalcy, is really common in children with autism. So normally, the child will be, uh, with autism will exhibit um, like normal behaviours for some time, and then after a few weeks, they'll start to change. Um, okay, which is. Um, one of the reasons why they would believe that it was being swapped because you, ha- you would have a normal child followed by not a necessarily as normal child. Yeah. Um, so for those of you who don't know as well, autism is a developmental disorder which is characterised by issues with social interaction and communication and um, by it, the individuals being restricted by uh, repetitive behaviour. For example, my older brother rocks back and forth an awful lot. It's okay. just, that's just his repetitive behaviour. Yeah. Just, yeah, um, I, yeah, it's not, I'm familiar. Yeah. Um, so parents usually notice the signs within the first two or three uh, years of the child's life. So they have a year or two of the child acting like a normal baby, and then once they hit toddler years, noticing this abnormal behaviour, because obviously that's when the social interaction would normally start to kick in, and the movement abilities would start to kick in. Okay. Um, so again, that kind of contributes to the... Um, believing you had a normal child and then it's swapping out to being a changeling. Yeah. Um, it's also... Um, autism is a really uh, variable neurodevelopmental disorder, so it's, it's on a spectrum. Obviously, it's not like yes or no. 
and um, that's why you get people with milder autisms and such um so quite commonly um these behaviors would go unnoticed and i think it was only in the extreme cases that a child was labeled like as a changeling when it was um like i said like very serious and out there so um another one of the symptoms of uh, some of the signs that your child has autism is also atypical eating which explains the um, the mother's um, noticing that the child would continuously eat without being uh, sated there's also, okay. another, there's also another reason why they were viewed as being um, um, in quotes plague upon the household because again if you're in pe- if you're a peasant you had very few resources and if your child is kind of constantly eating it kind of puts a massive drain on your resources yeah there were a few tales, um, famous folklore tales about um, children with um, uh, uh, changing children. So quite commonly, they sort of take place in like a a, a woodcutter's hut or a farmer's um, barn or something. And then the mother would normally um, leave to go deal with something for like a day, believe that the child is fine, um, and then on their way back. In the folklore tales, they'll normally see some sort of pixie or. Um, fairy around their house and then after that they'll start to notice the changes okay um obviously the pixies and the fairies aren't the real aspect <laughs> yeah <laughs> i guess that's uh, up for debate but <laughs> yeah I, mean, I don't know so some of the um ways that you could um deal uh sorry in getting quotes deal with the changing child was to throw the child into the furnace so that the changeling would run up the chimney and the fairies would then return your child yeah i am familiar with that one that was uh yeah so that's, that's quite grim super that's gross. fucked up so of course the baby would not actually run up the chimney um it's kind no. of again i think it was used for like peasant excuses as to why they had to get rid of the child that was draining all of their resources Mm. They were like, oh, we had to. It was a changeling child. It was acting weird. We had to throw it onto a fire. Yeah, it's so fucked up. Mm-hmm. But Definitely. They would do things like um, leave the baby out into the woods to be taken back. Yep. Um, they would mistreat the child in hopes that the fairies would notice and then swap the child back. Mm. Um, so it was often a... And it was used as an excuse to, uh, unfortunately, very, very unfortunately, abuse yeah. these poor disabled children. <laughs> yeah. I mean... I'm sure they believed for, it was supernatural. For the times, it makes sense. But yeah, it's yeah. still fucked up. I'm sure they believed it was supernatural. I'm sure they believed they actually yeah. had a changeling child on their hands. But um, obviously, in, in just uh, explaining that in modern days, we have an explanation as to how this behaviour the, of the baby can be explained. Yeah. Um... So yes, yeah, so it's just experts who have looked at the history of autism have concluded that the stories ex- um, that explain the birth of the disabled children in non-scientific cultures, so it's like the 1600s, what, what do you know about psychology or medicine or neuroscience or <laughs> behavioural disabilities, yeah. <laughs> any of that. So these legends were the society's attempts to make sense of and cope with like a child with disability um, to provide a coherent explanation so it wasn't it wasn't necessarily these people were inherently evil and were out there to hurt their children they just genuinely thought they were dealing with something supernatural here and now we don't we have we have progressed 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 (laughs) you got one of them right (laughs) we got there like there's a word there somewhere (laughs) it's fine we 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 know english (laughs) mostly (laughs) 
Yeah, so that's changing children, explained. Yeah, it's uh, definitely... It's a really yeah, interesting thing to read up on as well. It's part of folklore I'm quite, that I w I'm relatively familiar with. Yeah. Um, it's quite popular in, like, partially sci because, Partially because stuff. RPGs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. A few different <laughs> media representations. Sometimes they're just viewed as being, like, shapeshifters or something. Mm. Like, fairy shapeshifters. But in the original folklore, that's how they were portrayed. Yeah. I couldn't actually find anything about a changeling who had grown up into an adult. Um, so I'm not sure how much information there was about that. If someone else finds it, then, you know, yay. Let us know. <laughs> yeah. Put it in the comments. Yeah. Join the Facebook group. We can, like... We can discuss this. Yeah, I, I always put discussion <laughs> discussion friends, which I don't think yeah. anyone talks in. Yeah, if, anyone, <laughs> if, if anyone wants to know, talk more about neuroscience... <laughs> Yeah, so I'll do the next one. Get me on um, MSN. <laughs> hit me up on MSN, bro. <laughs> Find my MySpace. <laughs> right. So the next one I'm going to talk about is quite a short one, so it's fine. Yeah. Um, it's about doppelgangers. Ooh, doppelgangers fun. Yeah, so um, they're mostly from Germanic folklore. Um, and doppelganger literally means a double-goer. Mm -hmm. So it's um, cases of where people see... Um, themselves, but like a double of themselves, so not like yeah. a reflection or anything. Um, so it's a living person, or so they see a living person that moves and makes gestures and talks, but it's them, but not them. Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes. Yeah. Um, and in folklore, these things would often um, bring about a message of death. So you see your doppelganger, and yeah. it's like you're gonna die, yo. <laughs> Not that. In German. <laughs> Translate it to German. It sounds like that. We do have German listeners. They can translate it. <laughs> Please I, do. I, Sorry. Thank you for listening. Please don't leave. <laughs> Please don't. I'd feel really bad. <laughs> so they are found in like other traditions around the world, like um, Nordic and Finnish. Um, ancient Egyptian as well. I think they're called Kar which was a spirit double with the same thoughts and feelings as the original. Okay. Um, but mostly, from what I could find, it's um, Germanic. What, what was that called again? Ka. K-A. K-A, okay. Yeah. Uh, I might be mispronouncing it, sorry. Um, I mean, it's, uh, it sounds right to me. Yeah. It's two people. It's right then. <laughs> I mean, it's Germanic, it's, so it must be like that, right? No, sorry, that was Egyptian. The Egyptian Ka, K-A. Oh, yeah, that's probably right as well. Yeah, probably. Um, I could just be lying, though. <laughs> We're both lying. This whole thing's been a lie. <laughs> um, so some accounts of doppelgangers, um, with they're also called evil twins. Mm. Um, so that goes to show how positive they are. Um, yes. <laughs> suggest that they might attempt to provide advice to the person that they shadow. So like you would see yourself and they would give you advice about whatever journey you're going on or whatever you're going through. But often this advice was supposed to be misleading or malicious. So, like, you know, yes, do drive into that lake. <laughs> It'll be oh, like, man. you know, you would find this at the bottom of a lake and, yeah. And they would also um, attempt to plant... Really one of those Jesus take the wheel moments. <laughs> Vroom! <laughs> to the veering left. <laughs> well, he wouldn't have had a license back then. <laughs> he wouldn't have done, no. Cars wouldn't have existed back then. So they may also attempt to plant sinister ideas into the victim's mind or cause some great confusion. I mean, if you see an image of yourself, you're probably going to get confused. I know mm. I would. <laughs> Happens when I look in the mirror, let alone, like, seeing it out in the street. <laughs> yeah, I mean, 
Oh god, when I sh- when I shaved like a while back in March, I You're like what? No, I, I lived for about two days straight. I I scared myself every time I looked in the mirror. <laughs> so um, doppelgangers are mostly sort of works of fiction, um, so they weren't necessarily real. But there are a few real life cases in which people um, have actually claimed to meet their sinister duo. Mm. I guess like Luigi and Waluigi. I guess. <laughs> One of the most noteworthy, I found this really interesting, and if someone can get more information on it, that'd be cool, is um, Abraham Lincoln. Hmm. Wait, re- repeat that? So, um, like, they're mostly fictional doppelgangers, yeah. but there have been a few real-life cases, including Abraham Lincoln. Hmm. Like, I couldn't, I couldn't find too much more info on it, but if someone else can, that'd be great, because I really want to know about this. Uh, yeah, like, I've never had that. No, I hadn't either. It sounds great. So according to... It also, was... I hope you realise that now I can't stop thinking about Waluigi. <laughs> Wah! Wah! <laughs> Waluigi number one. <laughs> Waluigi's the best, I'm sorry. It's like, it's like you said it and now I just can't stop thinking about him. Like... <laughs> just send you all the Waluigi memes. <laughs> oh, um, so apparently... Um, a book was written by someone called Noah Brooks um, called Washington in Lincoln's Time. Mm. I think it was 1895. Okay. So that's why I couldn't get hold of the book. <laughs> yeah. I mean, also, I, also, you kind of did this today. Like, I, yeah. Like, I, 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 I asked you last night. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, so, so according to Noah Brooks' account, soon after Lincoln was elected in 1860, he arrived home one day and looked into the bureau mirror well, he saw himself reflected in double. So he didn't just see, like, one reflection. He saw, he saw two in the mirror. Huh. Yeah. That's creepy. So Lincoln described it as he saw them at nearly full length, but the face had two distinct images. That's weird. It is 1895, so I'm not sure what he was on. I'm kidding. <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong, either. <laughs> So, like, I'd, I wouldn't put put anything past that time. Well, yeah, 1895, yeah, no. <laughs> it, like, it honestly would not surprise me if, if Mother Teresa was an acid the whole time. <laughs> she was just tripping. <laughs> like, it was, like, the It was the time for that, yeah. It was the times. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, just how it, it's just how it worked. <laughs> so he said that Lincoln noticed that, although the images were nearly identical, that one was a little paler... Um, he said, say five, shi- five shades paler than the other. How? Okay, so what's a shade? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, is, are we five shades paler apart? Because, like... <laughs> we'll, we'll take a selfie after yeah, this Yeah, we episode. will do. I mean, I'm pasty, so... <laughs> yeah, I'm Indian as well, so it's like, there's, there's a bit of difference. <laughs> um... So his wife was said to be very worried, um, and Lincoln, um, well, she told Lincoln that she believed that the paleness of, of half the dual image was a bad omen, which meant that Lincoln would serve his first full term, but would not live to finish his second. That's what she thought it meant. Mm. Which is like, I mean, he was shot. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I don't know, did, did he make it into second term? I don't know when he was shot. Same? We're not Americans, so we didn't do like American history. Yeah, it's like, I just, yeah, so I just know the basics, yeah. like, I know the death part, I don't know, I don't know anything about him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Apart from apparently he was honest and he was pretty funny in the second like, museum film. <laughs> he was, he was great in that. And also he was apparently a vampire hunter, that's all I know. Yeah, that's too. <laughs> um, 
So this um, doppelganger um, phenomena can be explained by something called... Uh, you're going to have to bear with me. I'm going to have to get this right. Um, hotoscopy. I'm going to give it to you. Yeah, I, th- I think I got that right. Yeah, it's like I couldn't say any better. So it's where you perceive an illusory body and your centre of awareness can shift between your physical body and the illusory one. So obviously like, your centre of awareness is in yourself, right? But imagine if your senses were playing a trick on you and you saw another you and your centre of awareness had switched to that other you. If that kind of makes sense, like how trippy that would be. Yeah. Yeah. I, it makes sense to me. So these hallucinations typically also involve really strong emotions, a shared bodily sensation with the illusory um, image, and a combination of empathy um, for the illusory body with a feeling of depersonalization for your own physical body. Weird, but also makes sense to me. Yeah, like, it's it's trippy. Yeah. It's trippy as hell. It, that's, um, yeah. So there was one case um, that was... Uh, studied by someone called um, Peter Brugger. I don't know if I, spot, if I uh, said that right. Sounds right. Yeah. It was in 2006, so it was really recent, yeah. where um, there was someone who was suffering from a polyopic hotoscopy, which is where you see more than one double, and this guy actually saw five doubles. What, in a mirror? Like, uh, not or in just, a mirror, just, just in, in front of him. At a time. Five at a time. I think three of them were male doubles and two of them were female. Okay. Yeah, so it's something to do with, um, apparently uh, it was to do with um, a tumour that was in one of the parts of the brain that um, deal oh, with so your so sensations. Oh, so you mean like all the time? Yeah. Like you, you saw well, it, all not sure if it's all the time, but he saw them really, really often. Okay. okay. So there's a tumour, he had a tumour in a part of his brain that was... Um... I was going to say, because that would be really, that would be, <laughs> be really awkward when I'm trying to sleep. Yeah, just guys, guys, guys. Stop it. <laughs> when you're trying to pee, it's like, I can't go where you're watching. You have to go to like a whole like public bathroom like... that was empty so you could all go at the same time. They're not just like crowding around him like, you're going to start, you're going to start yet. <laughs> it was, um, it was, apparently it was a tumour in the insular region of his left temporal lobe. So the temporal lobe is to do with like sensations and um, uh, visual processing and vision and um, sensory processing. Um, and brain scans of patients who also suffer from this usually show damage to the left posterior insula and the adjacent cortical areas. See, my neuroscience is coming into play here. Yeah. Yeah, that that went straight (laughs) over my head. So the insular cortex combines visual, auditory, sensory, motor, proprioceptive, which is the ability to know where your body is in relation to the rest of your body. Okay. Um, Now to make... And signals um, from your... Uh, surroundings um, which gives rise to your self-consciousness and the perception of your bodily self so it allows you to know where your body is in relation to everything in the world and where parts of your body are in relation to your own body if that makes sense it's like you can tell how far your hand is from your face because you can see the fact that your hand is next to your face if you put it there repeat that (laughs) sorry (laughs) so that part of the brain um uh, puts together all the information that you get from different parts of your body like from your senses and from proprioception and it goes right well I know how far away from um, like so for example I know how far away from you I am because I can see you and I can see that if I move my hand closer towards you my brain's going I've just moved the arm the arm looks closer to him therefore I have moved my arm closer to you 
That kind of makes sense. I don't know why I flinch even though you told me you're going to do it. <laughs> Just smack you in the face. <laughs> like, I had all the warning and I still flinched. <laughs> so if that part of your brain is starting to mess up and you see a double of yourself, um, it shifts your centre of awareness. And because that part of the brain's messed up, and but you can see that double, you start to get the senses from some of the senses from that double, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think so. Yeah? yeah? It's a bit weird. It's a bit complicated. I tried to find more research on this, but you have to pay for an awful lot of the research papers. Because <laughs> I, I think it makes sense. Yeah, that kind of makes sense. Um, it's called a hotoscopy. So it's H-E-A-U-T-O-S-C-O-P-Y, if someone is, wants to research I'm it. I'm glad you spelled that out because I was so wrong. <laughs> hotoscopy. <laughs> um... So because this is all really trippy and weird um, and the perception of yourself is so important to your human condition, um, it's not surprising that the doppelganger effect is so closely tied to like the possibility of imminent death. Yeah. You're, you're seeing yourself go, and it freaks you out. It's weird. The paper that I... I wanted to read the paper a bit more, but unfortunately it was blocked so you had to pay for the rest of it. Um, he actually talks about 14 different cases of it yeah. ac- across Who several. was it again? Peter Brugger. So it's... B-R-U-G-G-E-R. It was in 2006. Um, So if you have access to it or if you can pay for it, then definitely read it. It sounds really interesting. Yeah. It's like a review. So he has like a case study of that person who um, had the tumour and can see five. And then he also does a review of 14 other cases. Hmm. So it's actually, um, it's obviously rare, but it's not that unheard of. Yeah. That's interesting. It's also often related to out-of-body experiences as well. The whole like, like where you see yourself from a, yeah. Above, so it's not like you see a double; you see yourself. The depersonalization. Stuff. Yeah, it's weird and trippy. Yeah, um, we got a sciency there. Yeah, <laughs> like I think I just about followed it. Sorry. About. <laughs> if you need more of an explanation, like I can like put it onto your discussion thing, and someone can ask yeah. me. It's fine. Okay. Yeah, that sounds good. Cool. So the last one is demonic possession. Ooh, I, I like these. Yes. These, these are fun. Yes. Um, so I'm not going to explain too much as to what demonic possession is, because it, it kind of is what it says on the tin. You know, it's, you know, it's said that saying names of demons makes more like... It's like you're not supposed to say names of demons. From watching too much Supernatural for that to, <laughs> to happen. I can't remember what... what, like, what where that stems from but, the whole, like, but I know it's definitely a thing in yeah. a lot of places is it like saying the names at a crossroad or something I just you don't can, like, think summon them I, I just don't think you're supposed to say the names I mean, it's probably bad luck anyway it's <laughs> essentially inviting them to you yeah I guess like yeah and especially don't say the names with Ouija board. oh yeah because obviously it's supposed to be the spiritual connection mm-hmm. so they can like mess you up yeah it's like um like, I don't really believe. I don't really believe in that stuff. No, I but. don't. But I'm also not sure how much I'd be willing to mess with it. I don't believe in it, but also I'm wondering if my own psyche would mess with me. Yeah, and I know I know plenty of people listening. Are, uh, <laughs> are, are, thinking of, are thinking of one name in particular. When I said Ouija board. <laughs> Waluigi board. The Waluigi board. Because <laughs> 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 um, it's the I think the Zozo demon or something. Yeah, where where there's, uh, there's there's a lot of podcasts on it. I don't think I'll be doing it, so I'm happy to just say that's it. fair. Yeah, I know, and that's where we drink the, and there's there's also a couple more that than okay. because it's quite a famous like yeah, Ouija yeah. board kind of story. Um, 
But yeah, like saying Zozo is meant to summon Zozo. Oh. <laughs> and they also do it in Until Dawn, so, don't they? The game. Is it Until Dawn? The teenage horror one? Yeah, but I don't think it's Zozo, do you? No, but they like, use, they, a they use a Ouija board. They use a Ouija board, yeah, in that game. It's a good game. You should, like... I should do, but I can't get past, like, how annoying all the teenagers it. are. <laughs> or at least watch it. I should do, because I can watch someone else take the piss out of them. Yeah, exactly. Oh, right. yeah. Cool. So... It's the demonic possession is believed to be the process by which individuals are possessed by... Deep- it's quite, quite, uh... Yeah. Yeah. Self-explanatory. These are, like, I... Like, find these really interesting, so... This is so good. Um, I'm going to talk about one really famous one for a little bit, and we'll talk about mm. a little bit behind... Mm-hmm. The logical reasoning behind them. Yeah. So, um... So, apparently... So, obsessions and possessions of the devil are supposed to be placed, like, um... In the rank of, like, apparitions of evil spirits among... Um... And then it's this obsession where the demon, like, acts externally against the person whom it possesses. Yeah. Um... And the possession when he acts internally and agitates them and like excites their ill humor, from what I've uh, read online. Um, so the descriptions of demonic possessions. Um, obviously, there are a few different ones out there, but they tend to have very similar um, themes across all of them. Symptoms, you might say. Um, demonic possessions often include things like erased memories or personalities, um, convulsions, like you know fits, yeah, um, fainting. Um, some of the ones um, include... I, I, I couldn't find a, um, a proper explanation for this in the time I had uh, for researching. But the ones that include access to hidden and knowledge... Uh, sorry, hidden knowledge and foreign languages, which does have a name. I'm going to try and pronounce it. I believe it's uh, Xenoglossy. I'm going to say yes. Yeah. Um, uh, how do you spell that? X-E-N-O-Glossy. I'd call it Xenoglossy. Yeah. But yeah, so um, apparently there would also be things like... Um, a sudden appearance of injuries or lesions and superhuman strength um, mm. in demonic possession. Um, superhuman strength, I'm not sure how well documented that is. Um, I, I know it's documented in a couple, few cases. I've heard a few of them. Yeah. Um, so one of the most famous examples, I'm not going to talk about it too much because it's probably been spoke about a lot, is the Annalise Michelle, the one that mm. The Exorcism was based on. Yeah. Or The Exorcist. Yeah. yeah. Exorcist. Yeah, The Exorcist. Um, so just a short tidbit because that's a really good example of um like the whole package of demonic possession mm. shall we say <laughs> it's funny i ha- I've, I've not seen the exorcist but i've seen the two prequels do you know the, <laughs> you know the scene with her like spidering I, i'm I gonna say, call it i know i know plenty about it. i just yeah, nev- i just never yeah. got around to it i haven't I've seen, watched it either but i've seen the two, i've seen two of the prequels which are based in africa those sound good actually they're like, not. Oh, they're oh not, never mind. Ne- never mind. Don't watch them. <laughs> like, Spare yourself. <laughs> yeah, like... But Annelies Michelle was a German woman who underwent Catholic exorcism rites during the year before her death. Um, and that's kind of weird anyway, seeing it was in the 19, uh, s- uh, 1970s. So things like exorcisms weren't as popular. Yeah. Um, but later investigation actually determined... Um, that she was suffering from epileptic psychosis, um, which was also um, specifically a temporal lobe epilepsy. So that's yeah. where it was focused. She had a history of psychiatric treatment, um, which wasn't effective for her because um, not everything... Um, well, psychiatric treatment has come a really, really long way in just the last few decades. Oftentimes, like a paper from just 20 years ago isn't necessarily still... Um, 
also gotta say as important, this isn't as um, accurate as it would be now. So like that's how quickly like psychiatric treatment has um, evolved. It has been really fast. Oh, it's yeah. Like, it's, it's been like what 150 been, years maybe. It's been like centuries of nothing, and then just like click yeah. everything. It's like, I'm pretty sure it's been like what 150 years maybe, maybe two hundred. Yeah. So it's been like. The whole, the whole entire world of nothing and like everything. 18th, I think it was like 1850s that started yeah. like, being the actual thing. Um, but of course, that wasn't that great. <laughs> yeah. I, oh, no, it was awful. But <laughs> yeah. That's when it started Lobotomies being... and stuff. At uh, least that's when it started being more studied, were, yeah. I think, in Western culture. They were like, oh, this is a thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but as an actual professional thing yeah. that made... So they would do like lobotomies and yeah. such for a lot of psychiatric treatment, which should be another episode. Just weird psychiatric treatment. Um, that's I think that on the list of things I need to look into because I think that's gonna be really that be really interesting. Get me back because... for that one because I can tell you a lot about ice pick lobotomies. Yeah, you probably don't want to know all of it because they're gross. Um, so I know you should watch. It's a. It was on Netflix. For, I can't remember what it's called. I'm gonna have to look it up. Sorry. That's right. Remind um, me at the end. Remind me at the end of the yes. thing that I was. That well, you were editing something. this. You'll remind yourself. <laughs> yeah, that too. But uh, if not, just remind me on. Yeah, that. like I won't talk too much about uh, Annalise Michelle's case because hers is really popular. It's really well known. Um, so the case attracted media and public attention um, because of the priest's um, really, really weird and I'm going to say dodgy decision to use um, a 400-year-old ritual of exorcism. Like that's mm. um. Mm, I wouldn't say that's good. That's like invoke. To be fair, that's, that's essentially just invoking a like centuries-old law. But then there's and like, be like, yeah, being like, yeah, this this like, is gonna work. <laughs> I, I think for a while there was one that you could legally shoot shoot someone. I think it was legally shoot a Scot with a longbow within the within the walls oh, of York. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Or something that. like that. Like. Uh, I know that one, yeah. I, I think that wasn't abolished until like 2008 or something. It's because people forgot that it was a thing and they were like, oh, wait, hang on. <laughs> it's like, it wouldn't be, like, even if someone did it, it wouldn't be permissible <laughs> because that's just sensical. <laughs> it's like, it might not be illegal, but you're, you're still being a dick. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I mean, it's it's still murder, so it's still kind of illegal. Like, <laughs> like it's not great. <laughs> Cities don't still, get their, you still shock like, someone. Cities don't get their own laws here anymore. No, they don't anymore. Like, Which I'm quite thankful for. Yeah. That would be fucked up. <laughs> um, so it's been... It's quite well documented, I'd say, and quite well known that um, these demonic obsessions and possessions um, that are... I mean, they're like everywhere. They're like in the New Testament, the Old Testament. They're in Judaism and Islam. They're in tons of different religions and cultures. Um, they were simply just um, fantastic fallacies which um, made it believe that a person was possessed by the devil and that um, the, um, I want to say it's a nicer way, but sort of the ignorance of people about medicine and psychology helped to um, facilitate this prejudice and maintain it. Because imagine in the case of like, Annalise Michelle, um, she was raised Catholic and this Catholic priest coming to exercise, exercise you. It's probably going to make you... Um, are far more likely to beh- exhibit those demonic possession behaviours. Yeah. If that makes sense, because people who suffer from things like epilepsy, like during an epileptic attack, they'll often um, suffer from things like um, dysphoric or euphoric feelings or fear and anger and other emotions. So if you're already um, feeling those emotions, you're more open to being... Um, what's the word that I'm looking for? I guess your behaviours are more open to being swayed, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah, I um, think so. So this uh, priest that your family trusts, that your parents trust, um, 
and you're Catholic, comes along and exorcises you and tells you that you're possessed, are you, and um, you're currently undergoing an epileptic fit, and you can't necessarily remember what's going on, but your behaviours are going to be swayed by that. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, okay, that, yeah. now you said that, yeah, that makes sense yeah. entirely, yeah. Um, so... Those who profess a belief in demonic possession have sometimes um, ascribed to possession the symptoms that are associated with physical or mental illness. There are a few different ones. Epilepsy is obviously the big one associated with um, the fits, because you have seizures when you're epileptic. Yeah, of course. Um, but there are a bunch of other ones, like hysteria, psychosis, Tourette syndrome, schizophrenia, dis- uh, dissociative identity disorder. Um it's also not uncommon to ascribe the experience of sleep paralysis to demonic possession. Yeah. You know, um, the big thing with sleep paralysis is you wake up and you can see, you can't move, but you can see um, horrible images and horrible faces. And it's, it'd be very difficult if you didn't necessarily have a knowledge of what you were suffering with. It'd be very difficult to avoid um, associating that with demons, especially yeah. if you're in like um, a time and a place where people are very religious. Yeah. So it used to be um, that a lot of towns and cities were pretty much like controlled by religion. Not really controlled. That's not the, quite the correct word. But You're you know not wrong. I mean? Governed by. Yeah, it's like I think at that point it wouldn't be it wouldn't be controlled at that point, but for a long time that's essentially yeah. what it was. Yeah, they were like they were governed by religion. Like, like you would normally have yeah. like religious people would be like your politicians. Yeah, that's still the case. I think a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, so obviously demonic possession isn't a valid psychiatric diagnosis, um, but of course there are the symptoms that are associated with it that are symptoms of valid psychiatric diagnosis. Yeah. Um, and just a bit more about um, epilepsy for those who aren't um, too familiar with it. Um, it's quite common, dis- commonly known disorder, Yeah. but um, just a bit more about it. It's a disorder in which the brain activity becomes really abnormal. And it can cause seizures of, um, or periods of unusual behaviour, sensation, um, loss of awareness, so loss of memory, um, things like that. Anyone can develop epilepsy, so often when you see, hear about these um, demonic possessions, it's things like, um, they were such a normal person beforehand. And it's like, well, they, they're still normal, they just suffer from epilepsy. Yeah. Um, and seizures... Uh, the seizures... Um, Seizure symptoms. I'll try saying that five times faster. Seizure symptoms. Seizure symptoms. <laughs> seizure symptoms. <laughs> you tried. Seizure symptoms. I. I'm going to be mature and not try. And that's definitely not because I'm going to fuck it up. <laughs> so seizure symptoms can vary wildly. Wildly. Are you okay? <laughs> Apparently not. <laughs> I, just, I can't talk anymore. Good. Deep I breath. Oh, I'm going to try this sentence again. Yeah, from the top. You can do this. Scene and scene. Three, two, one. So seizure symptoms can vary widely. I did you it. it. You got it. <laughs> Yay. So like some people with epilepsy just like stare blankly for a few seconds. Um, others repeatedly twitch arms or legs, like the convulsions, which are really common. Um, so it was likely that um, people with demonic possession with demonic possession in quotes um suffered from seizures epilepsy um so i think uh so um, annalise michelle likely suffered from um 
focal seizures in the temporal lobe and like involve small areas of the lobe, like the amygdala and the hippocampus, yeah. which are both oh, the amygdala is responsible for your emotions essentially, and the hippocampus is responsible one of the areas of the brain essential for memory. Yeah, um, that's a very like diluted explanation. Yeah. Um, so, see, um, you get really weird sensations associated with these, like um, deja vu, amnesia, um, a sudden sense of unprovoked fear and anxiety. I mean, yeah. those do sound like the typical um, demonic possession symptoms. Yeah. Um, there was um, another case um, of demonic possession, speaking about the religious mm. um, affiliations. There's one in um, Loudon, France in the 1600s, I believe it was, where um, a group of um, nuns uh, believed that they were possessed. So it was likely that someone was suffering from some sort of mental illness at the time and it kind of, the fear of it spread. Was that, that the um, one where they all started meowing? I'm not sure if they started meowing. That because, sounds great. Because, there was, because, that. because we did mass hysteria in, in an episode, and uh, that was a thing. I'm not sure if it was because of possession or. Um, I'm not. I'm not sure if they claimed it's because of possession, but it sounds familiar. But yeah. Um, so it's likely that. Um, no, I could be wrong. I mean, if it is, that's that's weird. It, it, it might be unrelated entirely, but it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That sounds. I'm gonna research that. That sounds amazing. Oh, not for them, obviously. That's not very good for them. Listen to the episode. <laughs> hey. It's like hysterians. I got really confused because when I was looking at it, I was like, Ludon. I kept saying London. Ludon. Ludon. It just sounds like. So it was likely in that case that someone at that time was suffering from a mental illness, believed that they were possessed because of the high religious um, pressure. I want to say on them. Yeah. And then obviously that fear then starts to spread. If that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I won't go into detail about that. Yeah, it's yeah. fine. Cool. So there's a... Um, from what I've found and from what I kind of think, the neurological explanations for supernatural phenomena. Yeah. If anyone wants to know any more, I'll be on the little discussion bit thing. Yeah. <laughs> Type, typing, yeah. typing away. The Facebook groupy thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, cool. So, um... Close. Yeah, well, cool. We'll cut to music now. I'll be back with my story. Yes. Cool. Boop. And we are back. So, um, that was Hannah's stories on supernatural beings with neurological explanations. Yes. Okay, I, 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 think I, I think I've mixed my words up, but... You got there, it's yeah. fine, it's the gist of it. It's the gist, cool. But yeah, so, now, on to my story, where I get to talk about the... I get to talk about the Kenge Uprising. And the Gulag! Yes. Um, for those who don't know what Gulags are, um, we're going to take you over to the uh, Soviet era. And uh, this one in particular will be in uh, May and June 1954 for this Basically, gulags were basically forced labor camps, and uh, let me just say, conditions weren't great. They weren't family friendly. Let's no, just say. not in the slightest. Like you'd have all sorts of shitty things, like violence, abuse, like abuse, uh, forced labor. As yeah, I yeah. Like, <laughs> um, and like poor, like food and stuff. Yeah, yeah. nothing great. No, 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 no. You didn't want to be in the gulag. No benefits. Yeah. And so, but 
the Kenga uprising was uh, basically it basically happened in, the, in a camp called Kenga, uh, which was uh, in Kazakhstan, and this one kind of, I, I was just reading a bit about it kind of came up when I was on a Wikipedia dive earlier in the week. Um, because I kept clicking on related links. It was, it was just you just you were just Google diving. Yeah, basically. Um, I I just kept clicking on related links and that came up. It distinguished. It's quite uh, separate to a lot of the other Gulag uprisings in the area, in the region or time period even uh, because it, of its length and uh, effectiveness. I guess was right. But yeah, first I'll give you a couple. A bit of background about the yeah. area. Um, I won't go too much into Gulag's team because otherwise we'd have so much. Yeah, yeah, to go yeah. Through. Like, honestly, most of this from Wikipedia because <laughs> just because there was so much on it, and I was like, I don't want to go too over the top. Um, You'll come up on some signals somewhere. <laughs> no, it'll, it'll just end up really long. <laughs> like. I'm like I'm already on plenty of lists from just re- from researching this <laughs> podcast. But, um, yeah, so uh, bit, I'm going to go into a bit of background first. I won't go too much into the actual Gulag, like Gulag in general, the history because um, there'll be a lot. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So um, this is mostly on. So I started like when Gulag started changing and stuff towards the end okay. of. Um, well, a- around the actual uprising, at least. Yeah. So basically, um, a year before the uprising. Uh, Joseph Stalin died. Okay. Um, and if you don't know who Joseph Stalin is, you should. You should, probably, you should probably Google that. He was pretty important in World War Two. Yeah. Um, pretty big name. Yeah. Not not a great dude. Or just um, listen to the epic rap battles of his. That works too. <laughs> yeah, his death uh, basically re- uh, gave a lot of prisoners a lot of uh, hope for amnesty and stuff, um, or at least a reform, because it was also accompanied by the following. Uh, De- uh, death of his right hand man and state security chief, uh, Lavrenti Beria, um, who was the chief of the Soviet security and police effort, uh, kind of general stuff, and also the person who made a lot of the um, worst policies related to the camps. Yeah. Okay. Um, and basically, after Stalin died, um, was good, he was declared an enemy of the people and executed by those who succeeded him. Barrier base being denounced in such a way basically um, gave a lot of people food for thought, I guess. Yeah. Um, it had a it had a big effect, especially for um, people in the um, Soviet hierarchy, like in the actual official hierarchy. Right. In both, especially the uh, top and bottom ring. Okay. And because anyone who'd basically associated with or spoken too much in favor of Barrier during his life was basically. At risk of being denounced as a traitor and uh, executed, or persecuted, maybe like just sent to camps or whatever. I mean, he doesn't sound like a nice person, to be fair. No, like he was a shit. <laughs> but um, this basically meant that um, it wasn't just people in general; it was also the camp admin that were that that were at risk of this, which basically meant ah, this okay. their their position of power. That okay. Basically, um, affected the prisoners' view of them. Yeah. Um, so prisoners basically had a lot less respect for them, and especially ones that were seen as uh, barrier supporters. Yeah. But yeah, so basically, um, it weakened their position in the view of the prisoners. Okay. Um, and like, there were a lot of strikes taking place at the time as well. Um, and this just kind of ha- this kind of 
added to it. Like, uh, so prisoners all over the Gulag were basically becoming a lot, a lot bolder, um, and um, like before the uprising, with like hunger, like there were hunger strikes, work stoppages, uh, insubordination, and violence, like becoming a lot more common. So yeah, in Kengir, uh, the camp authorities were losing all control basically, um, and like with a lot of communications, like sent by commanders up the hierarchy, there were a lot of them expressed horror at the frequent instance of um, like violence and uh, the basically underground organizations becoming more powerful. Okay. Um, and it basically essentially became a crisis. And. Uh, I, and on top of this, like, prisoners are pretty pissed off because a lot of, like, instances of them being shot for no reason. I mean, also they're prisoners. Yeah. Um, that can annoy some people, I guess. Like, there was one famous case of, like, a column returning to camp from a ore dressing plant and basically just being fired on uh, with dum-dum bullets, which I assume rubber bullets or something. But I'm not, sure, I'm not entirely sure. But um, they, it wounded 16 men. Um... And a couple, another couple of dozen concealed light wounds to keep the names out of reports. So apparently, no more. <laughs> so you had all, all all kinds of stuff like that. Yeah. And like there was another guy that called um, that was known as the Evan the Evangelist. Basically, he would serve nine years, and and he probably and he probably only had like he didn't have that long that much longer left oh. uh, in there. And his job was basically archiving Rodson, which he did in. And he w- he went out to relieve himself nearby, and he was just shot at it from watchtower, just because like there wasn't really any reason for it. Um, though people, but though they basically blamed it on him throwing rocks, they just kind of made it up. <laughs> so they were like, "Oh, this man was definitely just being evil." Yeah. Oh, he had three months to go. Oh, that's yeah. so sad. Uh, so yeah, p- p- people were pretty pissed off. Yeah. And it was because he was relatively well liked as well. So yeah. Um. And yeah, basically, um, the camp basically uh, was in the shape of a large rectangle, uh, divided, divided into four areas. You had the women's camp, the service yard, um, with storerooms and stuff, you had, and you had two camps for men, each with its own jailhouse, um, for, which was used to, pu- to punish prisoners and hide them from. And the women's camp was blocked off from access and sight of... Like, you normally had, you had two main factions. Okay. You had Thebes, who were basically um, habitless criminals. Okay. And he had uh, political prisoners. Oh, uh, alright, okay, yeah, I see what you mean. Um, so, uh, traditionally, uh, Thebes and political prisoners had uh, been antagonists, with Thebes having a lot of power over, and basically abusing them and robbing them at will. Um, basically, it's left the politicals too uh, disunited to actually manage to get any kind of credible defence up. Okay. Um, which was generally encouraged by camp administration because it stopped them from yeah. like, getting any, like getting anything. Power. So basically, they recognised the potential of Thebes as just as a way of suppressing them. And later on, they they would infuse about six hundred fifty Thebes in, into a body of about two five thousand two hundred political prisoners just to try and get some disco. They would just they just throw them in there. Like, like there were more thieves there already, but um, they just tried to add a load of them just to see, if, just to try and make the pl- yeah um, stop. Um, that'll, that'll come later on though. Um, so like this, would, so adding the so they thought adding the thieves would help. And another important thing were informers, which were generally uh, prisoners that would work with the guards. Yeah. Um, they tried like pick out uh, 
public-looking person is. If there was like a plan or something going on, then yeah, okay, there were snitches essentially. Yeah. So yeah, basically, um, an important thing here was um, that good that gulags started in the early 1920s, but it was only in the early fif- early 50s when they separated pl- the political prisoners and the thieves into different camp systems. It's like which th- why you had the two men's. It's for like 30 years they were just. Yeah, basically that the, the thieves just could fuck them up. Oh right. They were together. Um, so when the thieves were out of the way, finally, the politicals finally had a chance to um, get groups together, uh, with the main ones being national, religious, and ethnic groups, um, which kind of came together into strong groups, and then which led towards a camp-wide coalition. Okay. Um, which was, which was mainly done by um, a group together to launch campaigns of basically murdering any informers. So they would just say, oh, we don't like you guys, we're just, we're just, we're just going to finish you off. Yeah. Uh, it's like, it's important to note that uh, with Thebes, one of their main things is you like you never collaborate with any uh, authority, and you never join the army, basically. Yeah. But there's, like, there's a list of it on Wikipedia, but um, that's a, um, those are like, main, those are like two, some of the main things. And this can be like, and it means anything. Like, if they, like right. this means if a guard asks you to do something, you have to say no no matter what. So like, damned if you do, damned if you don't type thing. Because the guards wouldn't be too happy if you said no. No. But the guards aren't allowed to strike and kill you. Most. I mean, they would. Yeah, they would. They they're allowed not allowed to. to. But yeah, basically, um, because of all these informers there, originally, um, that basically had a chilling effect with the prisoners. So basically, they wouldn't trust each other. Well, if you're an informer, you can tell the guards. Yeah. Um, because they became so um, efficient at killing um, informers, they... Could finally come together without any fear of this. Um, like, but by the end of it, any of the remaining basically fled the camp. Yeah, so, you're, you're gonna get killed. So it's yeah, yeah. Like, I believe one of the I read like it's not my notes, but one of the things I I one one of the uh, ways they tend to deal with people that worked with authority was basically pinning down and driving a spike through their mouth, which was generally yeah. fishing from like a bed a, a bed leg or something. I was gonna say that's not that's not gonna be hygienic either. Yeah, like they just kind of ham- hammer a nail down right into your mouth. Uh, I guess that's also symbolic for, you know, talking too much, I guess. I assume so. They were very poetic about it, I guess. Yeah. It was uh, definitely, a, it was pretty brutal. Like I said, like, a lot of these ethnic groups came together, and the main one that came together was the Ukrainians, as a lot of them were made of... As about half of them were made of exiled members of the Organisation of Ukrainian National, uh, who... Uh, quickly asserted leadership among the prisoners uh, because oh, a used, large, they, they, yeah. were, they were used to like stuff oh like that. yeah yeah um, and basically by members of the so-called Ukrainian center were generally the main people who dealt, dealt with killing informers made everyone else happy I guess yeah which which later would come in very handy for dealing with like, with the thieves that came in right yeah and on top of this um, they get uh, because of all these inform- informers got taken out, they, they started uh, being, they started fashioning high quality shivs. Um, I mean, you can't just use everyone's beds because <laughs> you don't have bed legs. I mean, a lot of it would be made out of like or or prison bars, and basically they were because before these basically just thieves that had them because they, mm. like I said they could hide yeah. and help each other out. And with all these incidents taking place, like pr- well, like prisoners getting killed and stuff, like it just became more and more. Yeah. Intense over time. Like, there were protests and, cl- and refused to work uh, a lot uh, a lot more often. 
uh, prisoners started learning how to plan and plan large-scale large distances by making systems of communication between camp divisions, oh. and also, and more importantly, by getting making command hierarchies like within them. And because of this, the, uh, the guards were like, uh, "We'll add all these these six hundred fifty thieves." Right. Yeah. Um, however, like I said. All the stuff that they, like these politicals were doing in, in, lead, in the lead-up kind of made the thieves respect them. And they yeah. immediately joined up with the politicals. Right, so they were like, oh, great, fantastic to be here. Nice to see you again, Dave. Yep. Like, and, like they met secretly on the first night and uh, established a pact pretty much straight away. Um, partially because they uh, kind of respected like what they're doing, and partially because they recognised their odds against 5,200 politicals. Uh- <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's not, that's not really well in their favour. Yeah. yeah, and united, so, uh, yeah. And all the thieves across the whole gulag kind of realised what the politicals were doing against them. Now, um, we get to one of the more important bits. Now, um, the start of the uprising, uh, it kind of began, like, in like basically, it kind of began on the start evening of May 16, which was a Sunday, and a which would be a day off for all the prisoners. I guess say, like, normally a nice chill day, Sundays. Yeah. Like, apparently even good as you get some days off. Oh, isn't that nice of them? And uh, the thieves basically uh, decided to break into the service yard where the food was stored. And after that, break into the women's camp to do from there. And, like, they they initially managed to do this, uh, but they were sh- chased off by the guards afterwards. It would have been terrifying for the women. Just, I mean, like, they managed to do it for... They managed to break into the food area. Yeah. I don't think they got that far. Oh, okay. And, uh, based, but at nightfall, they got back together and shot out all the lights and ranger with slingshots. Um, and broke through the barrier with a, um, between the men's camp and the service yard with an imp- improvised battering ram. That's some RPG shit right there. Yep. Um, and this is basically the turning point of the uprising. Like, as the guards opened fire, killed 13 of the men. The rest of the fees kind of retreated and, uh, Peace kind of followed for a bit, and until the night, the next night, as the thieves joined, were joined, joined up with the politicals and started breaking up their bank, bunks and cells, uh, adding to their shi- adding to their shift caches. But yeah, and meanwhile, the camp authorities posted machine guns at the hole in the wall. Mm. Uh, so there was a, a standoff. After a while, the camp authorities um, surprisingly ordered withdrawal. What machine gun versus shivs? Yeah. Huh. In a surprise gesture. Um, now, now the uh, prisoners uh, had some demands, um, and that was, like, which were pretty reasonable actually. Like, none of none of them were unconstitutional. Um, but yeah, so the, the the demands were punishment of soldiers that were responsible for the murder of pr- various prisoners and beating uh, women prisoners were to be punished. Yeah. Okay. Uh, prisoners who'd been transferred to other camps as punishment for participating in strikes uh, should be brought back. Okay. Uh, prisoners that no longer la- prisoners should no longer have to wear degrading number patches or be locked into their dorms at night. Okay. The separating camp divisions, uh, mostly between the women's camp, not be rebuilt. Um, and an eight-hour workday. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that also limits be taken off the number of letters that they could send and receive. And that certain hated camp guards and officials be removed from Kenge. And finally, probably most importantly, that their cases had to be reviewed. I would say, like, all of those, in my opinion, apart from the um, division between men and women, will sound fair. 
Mm. I don't know. I think sometimes a division between the men and the women in prison camps is probably a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... There might have been families. I, I don't, I don't know the, their personal I'm pretty sure, I, I'm pretty sure not, uh, a lot of the women prisoners were, so... Okay, I mean, yeah, that's fair. But I can see why they might want to still keep them separated. Yeah, but... But I also don't know. Like, there might have been, like, families. It, it there might makes have been couples. Sense. Yeah. yeah. Like, but, yeah. Like... So most of these people have been here for years already. Yeah. Well. Um, but yeah, basically the original regulation uh, specifically provided all for everything that the prisoners were asking. Uh, basically all they wanted was the, a reinstatement of those rights. They're just basic human rights, really. Like, they were specifically meant to have those things anyway. Yeah. <laughs> like, they just didn't. <laughs> um, however, this was a tactical move from the authorities. Okay. Uh, as the following day... Um, they, as the prisoners went off to work outside the camp, because they'd, because they'd said they'd accepted, basically. Yeah. Uh, the gamps... The, the, the gamps. <laughs> uh, the guards basically patched up the broken down wall in the meantime. So, um, needless to say, this was a strategic error in the long run, as Wait. it basically showed the bad faith of the guards. Yeah. Um, and basically eliminated any trust that the prisoners had. Yeah. Um, on top of this... Uh, the prisoners for a whole day tasted, uh, basically had total freedom. So they had like tasted that sweet, sweet freedom, and then yep, have um, that have their day ruined. Yep, where they mingled freely with female prisoners. They ate as much as they want. They uh, fraternized as they wanted. Like they could talk to anyone. Um, so yeah, they had this kind of taste of freedom. And a bit uh, like a bit after it was it sort of first propaganda by the authorities uh, where they. Reenacted in full prisoner costume, the alleged rape of women prisoners, where they photographed themselves and basically released them, declaring that the revolt was a cover for debauchery of Henry. And Henry. Oh. Um, however, the prisoners became aware of these tricks and lies, and basically quickly and quickly and pretty forcefully uh, reasserted themselves, uh, ran amok, and sent and sent guards fleeing from the camp again. I mean, I kind of assume that the prisoners outnumber the guards. Yeah. In this case. Yeah. And they have nothing to lose, really, in this case. Yeah. Um, they then redestroyed the wall and released prisoners from the camp's solitary confinement. Uh, the camp had then, uh, at this point, the camp had been seized and would remain in control for the next 40 days. I guess that's 40 days to set up and get things the way that you want them. Yeah. Like, now this is why it's interesting. Okay. Because in those 40 days, um, essentially, like, they essentially formed their own, like, government and... Like, civilization start to form, then? Yes. Like, a bit afterwards, the camp was... Uh, the prisoners sent, uh, basically came together in a mess hall and elected a new leader, who was a former Red Army lieutenant who was named Kapitan... Kapitan Kuznetsov. Yeah. Kuznetsov. Um, I think, yeah. One of those, we'll go right. with that. Um, and the major, major reason for this choice being that the... Ukraine is sitting insist on having Russian leadership uh, of, of the rebellion and basically having and then having the entire government be as multi-ethnic. They were forward-thinking. Yeah. <laughs> but the reason for this was basically they went to have avoid the appearance of the rebellion being anti-Russian. Right. Uh, but they also wanted to have a, harmon- a harmonious camp society. Yeah. Um, now, Kuznetsov and his um, admin were basically... Um, delegated to conduct, basically made to conduct negotiations with authorities on behalf of prisoners. But um, 
as the prisoners controlled account lasted for longer than they thought, they kind of added new departments of for government. Right, okay. And basically made their own government. Yeah, so that's pretty cool. And they had uh, departments of agitation and propaganda. Right. Uh, services and maintenance. So they had laundry, shoe, clothing repair, haircuts, all that kind of stuff. Um, you had food, yes, who like rationing food stores, which at the rate they were rationed could have lasted for many months. They were organised. Um, internal security. Uh, because there were some counter-revolutionary prisoners okay. who, were, who openly pleaded to surrender. Uh, these were then put in camp jail. Uh, you had defence, uh, the military basically, uh, and you had the technical department, which was staffed by engineers, scientists, and other professionals that were imprisoned in the camp. So this is why you don't put scientists in prison. <laughs> Gives them too much. Oh, man. Um, so I'll go to a bit of the uh, departments, because the main one's being defence and um, like along with propaganda and stuff defence became the um, main list pro- the main priorities yeah um, because if, before any of the camp authorities cut off the camp the um, smiths and uh, similar operators in the camp basically made loads of weaponry in the, in the service yards workshops um, like they made long pikes from prison bars they made sabres sta- stabs and clubs um so it's your basic, your basic D&D blacksmith, yeah. Yeah, like they made all sorts. Um, like those are just examples. They made other stuff. Um, and on top of that, the prisoners ground glass into dust and placed buckets of it throughout the camp, hoping to blind any oncoming troops. That's smart. Yeah, like this is like this was that's, very. That's a, that's impressive. Yeah, like it's very well put together. Um, like it was pretty impressive to do that how it happens. Yeah. Um, and uh, barricades were established at key points, um, with responsibility for manning them divided up amongst the barracks, um, with set shifts and procedures. Um, the technical department also helped the effort uh, by making improvised explosive devices and incendiary bombs, uh, both of which uh, actually saw in use during the invasion later on, and with the latter actually bringing down a guard tower. Damn! They just wait. You say bring it down like as in knocking it all down. As far as I can tell. <laughs> Jeez. Um, like they were proper incendiary bombs. Like I said, a lot of these people were prisoners. Uh, well, I guess like scientists 50s. and engineers and military. These were prisoners just post World War Two as well. You'd have. Oh yeah, of, yeah, of course. You know, plenty of people like this. Um, and then uh, on top of the stuff that on top of that stuff, uh, the technical department dealt with uh, any other problems that happened. Okay. Like um. At one point, the camp, like I said, the camp's authorities cut off uh, the electrical supply. Um, so the electricians, like in the prisoners, siphoned the electricity from the wires passing overhead, just outside the fence. Um, though this was late, uh, which lasted for a f- few days extra before it was cut off. Um, and after that, the prisoners used a modified motor as a generator, and even made an, even making an improvised running tap hydroelectric station. That's uh, so cool. Yep. Which supplied power to the government headquarters and the medical barracks. Huh. I might need to pop. Oh, okay. It's not five to five. That's fine. Do you want to do like a goodbye thingy or like a. Uh, yeah, sure, cool. So uh, Hannah has to pop off now anyway. So, yeah, I'm um... going to be a loser and go do LARP. <laughs> That's fine. I'll, I'll... Yeah, we can continue this tomorrow. I'm, all, I'm in all day tomorrow. Yeah, cool. We'll j- okay, yeah. so we'll. Pick up from culture? Yeah, we'll um, cut to music 
And then we'll yeah. be back tomorrow when we can actually, <laughs> so we'll actually have a guest for the whole thing. Yay! It's great living with my guests. <laughs> it's so useful. I'm just upstairs. I know. It's like, yeah, we'll just uh, finish up tomorrow. See you in the same episode. Yeah! <laughs> and we are back. Uh, the next day. <laughs> um, and Hannah's returned as well. Yeah, I've uh, done my lap stuff, almost finished my costume stuff so we can continue. Oh yeah, because you're in Comic Con tomorrow. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> cutting up a bit close. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. Um, it, yeah, you'll, you'll, be, you'll make it somehow. Uh, I'm, quite, I'm kind of jealous slow that you're going, so... It'll be good. Like, you're not a cosplayer unless you spend, like, until 3am the day before just crying about your costume. <laughs> <laughs> it's the truth. It wouldn't surprise me at all. <laughs> but yeah, so, um, let's get back into it. Instead of culture first, I'm going to go for propaganda. Oh, okay. Um, and then go to culture afterwards. So yeah, basically another one of the really interesting parts of the um, uprising was how propaganda was used. Okay. Uh, like the prisoners made their own propaganda system. All right. Um, like the first, the first mount, the first part of it was um, basically they they basically set a theme um, with, uh, that was set by Kuznetsov and uh, his deputy called Yuri Knopmus, probably. Nop Nopmus. Yeah. I assume yeah. Side of, it's probably a sun king. Otherwise, it's Knopmus. It doesn't sound right. But yeah. If that is right, I'm sorry. <laughs> um. But yeah, so basically, this theme was basically um, to sabotage the main argument against it, uh, because the main argument against against them would have been that the um, rebellion was anti-Soviet in nature. Yeah, that's why you said they put uh, one of the Russians in charge, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, basically, um, basically, that would be just an easy way to just get invaded straight away. <laughs> and... Um, and they then portrayed the guards as Barryites. Um, like, if you remember Barrier from... Oh, said, yeah, um, yeah. The guy who you don't want to be associated with. Yeah, because they killed you? Was that it? Um, In prison? He was killed? the security... There was the security guy uh, who got killed after... Yeah. After Stalin got killed. Yeah. So, yeah, basically they kept... So they made loads of placards and stuff with things that read stuff like "Long live the Soviet Union, the Soviet Constitution," and "Down with murdering Barryites and stuff like that. Just to get people going, you know. Yeah, um, because even with Stalin being dead, you weren't going to cross the anti-Soviet line. There, just, there was a line that they weren't going to cross, and that was it. Yeah, it's like it was. You, yeah, they they needed some like they needed something going for them. Um, and basically, over t um, over time, the um, propaganda department grew. Um, like at first, it was all large defensive. Uh, what they were trying to do, like just which was literally just uh, responding to the allegations that were held at them. So they were like, "Hey, we're not anti-Soviet." Yeah, basically. Yeah, because the guards would uh, broadcast uh, broadcast uh, propaganda over loudspeakers and into the camp. Uh, basically. Um, trying to get them to surrender and uh, complaining about loss of days of valuable, of valuable prison labour. Oh, <laughs> uh, that, that valuable prison labour. <laughs> and the alleged de detrimental effect it was having on the Soviet economy. I mean, I mean I'm mean, i no expert, but I'm not entirely sure that's the best way to um, base your economy. Well... Uh, prison labour? There's a... 
significant amount of um, resources would have come from actually oh, getting drugs. Yeah. Um, around this time, I think it was like I know for some things it was like fifty percent of their production of that of like that particular part um, of the like the entire country. So the entire economy is a uh, that that was not a sentence. That are not sentence. That are not words. <laughs> <laughs> you can sentence <laughs> <Yeah>. good. <laughs> I can words. <laughs> but yeah, no, basically, um, like it's not in my notes in front of me right now. But I, but off the top of my head, like it was stuff like a, a large portion of their lumber was from uh, would have been from gulags uh, mining. Like some things would have been up to fifty percent of the entire production of of these union. So on the one hand, it's great that they're getting prisoners to do something that's useful for the country. But on the other hand, like surely you don't want people in your prisons, so you want to decrease the number of people in your prisons. But if you do that, oh, uh, you're decreasing uh, your output. At this time, they wanted more people in their prisons. That's true. That's much. very much true. I guess. Yeah. Like, they're like, hey, free labor, essentially. Like the like mid twentieth. Yeah, mid twentieth century. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, like mid twentieth century and nowadays are very different things. That's, people that's had different. Very true. People had different priorities. I give you that. Um, From an ethical standpoint, which obviously is not the standpoint that they were taking. <laughs> but yeah, so um, basically, in response to this, the prisoners used a modified loudspeaker uh, to broadcast back a set of mock radio programs, including. Comedy programs and skits, um, who which were written by the agitation and propaganda department and announced by a quote charismatic female prisoner, um, like uh, one broadcast would have uh, said, "Comrade soldiers, we are not afraid of you, and we ask and we ask you not to come into our zone. Don't shoot at us. Don't buckle under the will of the barrierite. Uh, we are not afraid of them, just as we are not afraid of death. We would rather die of hunger in this camp than give up to the barrierite band." Don't soil your hands with the same blood, uh, with the same dirty blood which your officers have on their hands. That is good. So yeah, like they're pretty well, they're pretty well written. That's, I was gonna say that's that's nicely written. Yeah, like um, they had a lot of educated people in this camp. Yeah, you mentioned they had like the scientists, um, yeah. which didn't actually work in the guards' favor. No, not no. much. <laughs> no, um, and like like some of the technical department earlier. Uh, they also helped with propaganda as well. Um, like, and over time, it became, uh, became more and more ambitious. Um, because the prisons kind of realised that the situation probably wasn't going to last that long. <laughs> like, um, like they were already pretty surprised after the first, like, day or day, a few days at least. Right. Um, like I said, this lasted 40 days. Oh yeah, it was their um, reign essentially, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, and basically, they 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 basically try, started working to publicize the rebellion um, and demand and stuff to the village, which was nearby the camp, to try and get out in the public and try and make and try and get uh, like locals to support it. Um, and to do this, they like they did this a few ways. But the first way they did it was trying to rig hot air balloons with slogans written on them. Um, however, these were shot down by guards. So they then went up. Then so they then went up to kites, which were made by the Czechans. Uh, yeah, because they turned out to be specialists in that field. So they were like, "How do I believe it's too noticeable?" Kites. Yeah, we can do that. Um, because basically the kites. Um, let's go. Uh, they could keep going even with holes in them for a oh, lot yeah, of time. Yeah. Like, 
they wouldn't just immediately just Deflate crash. and yeah. yeah. Um, so basically, it made it a lot harder to shoot down. Um, like they were successful quite a while. Like in like in good winds, they could drop packets of leaflets onto set. But the authorities had another quite uh, clever idea here. Because they put their own kites to tank to tangle it up, so there was so there was kite on kite warfare. Kite, kite wars. Um, so uh, the final so the final thing that uh, the prisoners did um, was to um, fix leaflets to carrier pigeons and just released loads of them into the blue, like dozens of them. These pigeons are good for something. Yeah, like they they were pretty they were really clever about it. <laughs> like, Definitely, yeah. But yeah, like. And out with 40 days of this freedom... They got a, a lot done. Yeah. Like, a culture kind of spawned within the camp. Because um, they had the whole camp to themselves uh, with freedom, which they didn't really have ever. <laughs> like, even on days off, they'd still be in their camps. And um, suddenly all these um, men and women who had never seen each other finally met. Because it wasn't just, like, separate camps. Yeah, They'd yeah. never seen each other. Because they had the massive wall up, you said, didn't yeah. you? So a lot of them who had, uh, would romantically conversed over years, like... Aww. But would have never seen each other. That's uh, so sweet. They, they would have, like, they, they would have mostly um, conversed in secret, like, use, using letters and things. Pretty adorable and romantic. Yeah, so they finally met uh, with imprisoned priests um, make, uh, doing a number of improvised weddings. Aww. Um, like this, like this actually makes a lot of um people like. Like I read a few places on about this, and a lot of them uh, tend to call this a rebellion of love for this reason. It's really cute. It's so romantic and sweet. Um. So, and on top of that, prisoners would have retrieved what was left of their civilian clothing from the storeroom. Um. I say what was left because guards yeah. would regularly steal, steal and yeah. and sell the items or wear them themselves. Um. So. Prisoners suddenly had these fur coats and colourful clothing. Oh, that would have made you feel a lot more human. Yep. And, they, um, yeah. Yeah. And um, some and religious wear that had been banned. Um, like I said, it's in Kazakhstan. Which, yeah. Like, in the fifties, there were a lot like religion was a yeah, big thing. Yeah. Um, and businesses started popping up as well, with um, stuff like one Russian uh, aristocrat who opened up a cafe serving quote coffee <laughs> uh, it was it was just cheap coffee but yeah even wikipedia has it in quotes so it can't have been that great <laughs> it might but, be a bit more dirt than but, coffee yeah but it, but it was quite popular with prisoners i mean if you have like nothing i'm sure yeah, dirt's better um, than that right it's still coffee yeah um and uh over time like rec like organized recreational activities sprang up uh like spots and stuff <laughs> um uh, and because of the um, like very like the amount of political prisoners, um, and like I said, there were loads of skilled people there. They uh, and this so this was like engineers, scientists, general intellectuals, artists, and stuff like that were there. Um, so they all started so they could all do that again, um, like with people delivering advanced lectures um, for the enjoyment of education of educational classes, um, with arts flourishing with. Um, and poetry recitals and hastily prepared plays. Being that sounds really, really like sweet and like romantic and like hymns. Were, hymns started being made by uh, the Ukrainians, which were performed on. I've actually got one of them here, which uh, basically read um, at least part of it. Uh, a lot of the themes were um, 
quote, we will not, we will not be slaves. We will not, we will not carry the yoke anymore. Lots of that kind of stuff going on. Um, so yeah, freedom being the main course. Yeah. Because, you know. If you're imprisoned for a while, yeah. I can imagine it's a theme that you often think about. Mm-hmm. It's like, so yeah, religious uh, stuff started getting a boost as well, uh, because they could practice freely with... One notable instances being uh, when the religious sects uh, massing at the original broken hole in the dividing wall, claiming that their prophet had predicted its destruction and the freedom that followed. Um, and according to former prisoners, they then sat on mattresses, uh, sat on mattresses for several days uh, near the hole, uh, uh, praying and waiting to be taken to heaven. I guess if that's what bring you brings you comfort, then yeah, yeah do your thing. Yeah, like super interesting. Yeah, it seems like they kind of quite quickly went back to just being human beings. Yeah. <clears throat> like, there's a reason that this particular uprising is... Like, there's been yeah. other gulag uprisings, but this was the most successful and just unprecedented, like, unprecedented. I mean, and just how, how effective it was. I mean, everything you said happened in just over a month. Yeah. That's a lot to be... You know, like you said, you had the plays and the, um, the cafes and the poetry. That's... Yeah, that's been pretty impressive for just over one month's worth of work for the. Like, yeah, like they had a proper culture going. Um, then, of course, we could go back to interaction with the authorities. Yeah. So, no more happy times. <laughs> <laughs> like, for negotiations, um, yeah, like I say, ne- negotiations were pretty um, rough for a while. Like, because they still remembered the guards' basic, basic betrayal when they sealed up oh, the hole yeah. the first time. So basically, they demanded a written agreement, uh, which was reasonable. Yeah. Um, though, um, yeah. Like, a draft was written up by authorities and passed around the camp and stuff. Like, and it was the same demands as before. So the generals um, agreed to the demands again, but still didn't give them a written agreement. So, um, so they were like, yeah, 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 we'll, we'll, need- we'll give you this, it's fine. Yeah, needless to say, they were, they were rejected this time. <laughs> Um, so yeah, this basically just ended up turning the whole negotiations into, negotiations into threats and counter threats. So. Um, needless to say, you can't really negotiate when there's no trust. <laughs> yeah, no. So yeah, um, like the the prisoners uh, even tried to reach out um, to um, the negotiating partners to demand a member of a central of this central committee be sent, but this was refused. Refused. So uh, <laughs> yeah. So essentially because, the authorities were just not being very uh, compromising at all. Well, they, they didn't really... Well, yeah, and they didn't really want to send a important person into the gulag. Well, mm, yeah. I mean, that I can kind of understand. But yeah. So, um, yeah, like, we're getting up, up to um, the end of negotiations now. Yeah. Like, the, they were basically... the Like, at this point, the authorities were basically uh, waiting for, like, about to raid the place. Um, and before the raid, like, they... Attempted uh, other, other strategies like attempt like trying to um, cause civil violence within the camp um, by basically um, which and basically because basically on top of this on top of it being easy for them it also um, give give more justification for a massive armed intervention. Yeah, they were like they can't even uh, keep their hands off of killing each other. Yeah, like they made like they made um, like one of the things they did was make direct requests to high-ranking prisoners within the um, makeshift government, uh, uh, asking that they provoke racial bloodbath in exchange for their lives, because without, it went without saying that any prisoner in a high post would be tried and executed if, uh, afterwards. 
Just just casually provoke racial bloodbath. Yeah, because um, there was a lot of... Uh, at, at the time, there was a lot of um, paranoia and distrust of Jews within Russia. Um, and the authorities uh, even tried to spread rumours in the camp that there was a, uh, pog- a pogrom which basically just racially motivated genocide, essentially. Oh, right. Um, but pogrom. Yeah, P-O-G-R-O-M. Um, I'm going to just double-check the definition and make sure it's right. It's a really like it's a really weird spelling. Um, yeah, okay. So a program is basically a publicly sanctioned uh, deliberate persecution that's publicly that's publicly uh, right. legal, I guess the term is um, against a ethnic or religious. Right. So it was. Um, so from what I've got here, it says mostly anti-Jewish. Then. Um, yeah, like it, famously, it's it's a lot for anti-Jewish violence in, in the Russian Empire. Um, but it's but it's used for plenty of other things, especially in the in that area. But also like, I think it it's Indonesia. I'm thinking. I'm, I I hope I'm not just making up a genocide. <laughs> you know. Um, it was South. It was South Asia. I can't, I can't remember exactly where. It, okay, um, but somewhere in that sort of area. Yeah. Um, I was reading. I think it was Bangladesh. Actually, it was Bangladesh. So yeah, I think I just made up a genocide. <laughs> You're like Indonesia. That's what that's what you did. Now, oh man, we're trying so, to um, avoid that. <laughs> yeah, so sorry, guys. <laughs> yeah. People from Indonesia are like, wait, what? <laughs> I just lost so many listeners. <laughs> sorry. Um, but to be fair, from what I, from my research, I'm pretty sure pretty much everywhere has done something like that at some point. As they were in England, we can't talk. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, these efforts mostly failed. Um, it's good. The um, the however the other the other thing they tried was to draw out Orthodox communists and Soviet loyalists, um, and this was pretty successful. And they managed to actually get a, a number of them to flee the camp in the days before, um, including a high-ranking member of the prison's government who would later uh, you, who would later show up on the uh, loudspeakers as a voice urging surrender, um, which needed to say reduced morale. Um, but this was event- but this outflow was generally stopped up by internal security after basically putting anyone that tried to escape in jail. Is that the internal security of the authority or the of uh, the prisoners? Of the prisoners. So basically, the, the jailers put other people. They put jail people. The jailers put prison. The prisoners became jailers. Yeah. And then they jailed the people. Pris- who were- then they jailed people in jail because they were trying to escape jail. Okay. Yeah, oh, yeah, okay, I follow you. <laughs> I'm with you. <laughs> but didn't, um, beforehand, you were saying that they tried something similar with the um, sowing discord um, with the politicians while trying to get the thieves to um, kill more of them, and that also didn't work. Yeah. So it kind of seems like prisoners are generally pr- going to stick with the prisoners? The prisoners kind of knew uh, not to trust the authorities at this point. Yeah. They kind um, of seem like a lot of the tactics they had for... Um, trying to provoke violence within the prison didn't pan out quite as it uh, as they had planned not quite it kind of, like it was a little bit more than they expected yeah but um on a whole yeah on a summary but yeah now we're uh, actually coming up to the days before the raid um like they over like over the few days they did they did small the small um incursions um just to test the but they were like but they were just like, we'll, we'll, we'll go out fighting. In that situation, have you really got too much of a choice? Not really. It's either surrender or die or 
probably his friend Andai. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. And if you think you can take down 50% of them, then, you know. Yeah. You might as well go down fighting, I guess. Mm, and on top of this, the day before the raid, it was announced on the loudspeakers uh, that the guards had that their demand to meet with a member of the Central Committee was granted. So the, so the prisoner's guard was also l lowered because they were like, okay, we're, go we're getting somewhere. And the uh, prisoners, um, for days before the raid, they could hear what they thought were the sound of tractors. And, um, now, this turned out to be um, the noise of tractors being used to conceal the sound of tanks. Um, which the prisoners didn't think would be used against them. Tanks, multiple tanks? Tanks, multiple Um, and then finally on the, at 3.30am on 26th of June, uh, flares were shot into the sky and the raid began. Um, basically it started off with, uh, snipers quick pick, uh, picking off sentries on rooftops, uh, before they could sound the, the alarm. And then tanks rolled through the perimeter fence. They had five tanks... 90 dogs, and 1,700 troops in full battle gear. What did the prisoners have? Clubs. Uh, they might have had some fire They might have had some firearms that they captured, yeah. but not many. Nothing good. Um, well, they didn't have tanks. Yeah. Like, um, the tanks actually uh, came out with blank rounds, uh, to so terror. Um, because the blank rounds are still loud. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. Um, and they also had... Um, they also get kitted out with uh, barbed wire like um, trestles. Oh like, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, uh, which they used, which they could put down and uh, split up prisoner uh, areas. But the guards were all kitted out uh, with live rounds. The prisoner guards. No, the guard guards. Oh, the guard guards. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the guard, so the guards are shit. Well, uh, and um, tanks would run over people, like. Um, to quote, hundreds of Ukrainian women held hands and stood in front of the tanks. The tanks did not stop. Those poor women. But I guess they, they, they died doing what they thought was right. Yeah, like, 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 there are a few things like this, but I, I was just one of the ones I picked. Also, that's, I mean, that's badass of them, to be yeah. fair. Yeah. Um, and basically after this, it was pretty much just panic uh, and a lot of chaos, with um, some groups uh, fighting back with uh, a lot of counterattacks, despite heavy losses. Um, like they do stuff like throw sulfur bombs at tanks that had improvised um, uh, other prisoners hid or committed suicide um, the tanks like I said ran over prisoners or brought down barrack walls uh, where prisoners were hiding um, and the um, leaders of the uprisings were specifically targeted by designated squads of soldiers uh, to be taken into custody alive as well um, most of these were later tried and executed I say being uh, taken alive can't be much better. Yeah. The violence basically lasts for about 90 minutes. Um, and when, when, a lot of, uh, when a lot of the remaining live prisoners were basically um, ordered to come out on the promise that they would not be shot. Uh, they, well, they, I mean, they already broke quite a few promises, but... Yeah. But at this point, the, the fighting did actually come to an end. Right. I mean, 90 minutes must have felt like an eternity. Yeah. Um, like according to a lot of, uh, number of survivors of the camp... Um, Five to seven hundred prisoners were either killed or wounded in the uprising, with an additional six of the highest-ranking prisoners being executed. Um, however, the figures found in the Soviet archives claim that only thirty-seven were killed. That is, um, that's a large discrepancy. Yep, uh, not including those who later died of their wounds or were executed, and with uh, one hundred and six prisoners and forty soldiers wounded. Bit of a difference. <laughs> 
Yeah. Uh, but yeah, either way, I'm pretty sure everyone is exaggerating a bit, so you're probably looking somewhere in the middle. Yeah, I mean, probably, I mean... I I re- I'd probably, I'd probably put it somewhere at the 500 mark. Yeah, I mean, that sounds quite likely if... Um, I'd say the lower number of what the prisoners say. Yeah. I mean, they said, they said hundreds of Ukrainian were run over yeah. by the tanks. And then there's the people who... I'm not sure, of course... It, it, there is a way, I guess, that um, the authority numbers could be correct if they were technically not counting some things, such as suicide, um, yeah, things like that. But either way, a lot of people those, died. Those are probably fudged numbers. Yeah. So not, yeah. Uh, but, um, Kutsnazov uh, actually had his death sentence commuted to 25 years and was released and, reha- and rehabilitated after five years. Curious. That's, that's quite the reduction. Because remember, he was the leader. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, like there's, a lot, there's a few theories why, uh, but the main one um, is attributed to a full, detailed, 43-page confession that he wrote uh, wh- wh- where he denounced scores of fellow prisoners. That's just... Oh, man. Um, so, yeah, pretty fucked up. He basically sold them all out. Yeah, so he was like, eh, I'm, I'm not going to get out of this one alive. I'll no. just uh, throw everyone else under the bus. 43 pages. Or tank. They'll throw them under the tank, I yeah. guess, in this case. That's huge. Yeah, like... <laughs> so it's a 43-page confession... Um, just denouncing prisoners. Is that just 40 pages of names? or I, I, I doubt it. It, must, it, was, it was probably... I guess like details as to what yeah. people did, I'm assuming. Probably. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this... Like, on the flip side, this, this, gave, this was a source for a lot of studies on the uh, uprising. So, there were a lot of people... Yeah. A lot of people... Yeah, a lot of people do question how truthful it is. What, his 43 pages of kind of poop kind of... Yeah, like... Um, so, like some people might just add bits to get, him, to get themselves out of things. Oh yeah, he's um, flourished it a little bit. Yeah. You know like when you're trying to reach the word count for your essay? Too well. <laughs> Don't even go there. <laughs> he was like, 20 isn't enough. Yeah. Um, and uh, on top... Yeah, and on top of this, um, afterwards the camp admin is um, rumoured to have planted weapons on the corpse um, who didn't already have them for the sake of photographers. Um, who were brought in expressly for the purpose of, photograph- of photographing it. They were probably already biased, as yep. in the photographers. Obviously the people put- planting the weapons were biased. Yeah, and the day after the raid, almost a thousand prisoners were shipped off to different camps, um, and remaining prisoners were occupied with the task of rebuilding the destroyed war uh, and sealing themselves back up. That is a uh, poetically depressing it is. end. Um but this was a very significant... Oh, it's coming up to the end now. Yeah. But uh, this was a very significant kind of um, thing that happened. Yeah, because, um, like I said, this one in particular was a lot more efficient and in just how it worked. Like, um, Stalin's death uh, and Beria's... And along with Beria and... Uh, Beria dying and uh, Khrushchev uh, yeah. co- coming up. Basically, um, Gate Prisons a bit... Like I said, at the, begin- the beginning of the show yesterday yeah um like it gave him a lot of um hope that for amnesty and rehab and stuff um but the like the kenga uprising made this a lot faster uh because it kind of it kind of made things a lot more public and on top of this when they moved all these prisons like around the country they talked to each other yeah i mean also um the stuff that you mentioned that they were using that's an awful lot of resources to hold down for one prison there's no reason as to why um 
that couldn't be performed in other prisons, and it would take far more resources to also deal with that. Yeah. And it'd be significantly more difficult to keep that quiet. Yeah, because basically it, it kind of showed the authorities that Stalinism wasn't a sustainable policy, um, and that m- the mass injustices uh, like gulags and stuff like that wouldn't last very long without significant cost, like you just said. Yeah, definitely. So, um, yeah, good shout on that one. Hey, I can see smart. Um Yeah, so basically um, this ended up causing a lot of um, prisoners in other camps, uh, like the Rodnik camp nearby, uh, joining up with the Kenge prisoners in solidarity and l- launched their own short-lived strikes. Um, and these kind of popped up from time like afterwards really? and before, actually, but this was the main one that set it all yeah. off. So even short-lived, one, uh, short-lived ones are a bit of a bit of a, the, a pain to deal yeah. with, especially if they're um, occurring far say, more often. After this one, they wouldn't have let them last very long. Yeah, they would probably like, have uh, stamped them out kind of quick. Yeah, um, Mr. Henry realizes once things are established, it's not it doesn't go great, yeah. especially when they got so many like highly skilled people in like together. I mean, they also like. I'm assuming, assume that the people who were scattered to other prisons were some of the highly skilled people. Yeah, probably. You're also just then take. They would have learned things from the other highly skilled people they were working with. Yep. Probably taken that with them and then moved them off to different prisons where they can just yeah. spread that knowledge. Yeah, like um, a guy called Hilton Kramer of the who worked for New York Times uh, called the uprising. And basically, said the uprising restored a measure of humane civilization to the prisoners before the state were to assert its. Imp- um, with one with one prisoner saying, uh, "I had not before then and have not since felt such a sense of freedom as I did then." Uh, so um, this was, like, this was a huge thing, for, especially in just that culture around there, especially prison culture. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, I think we were saying earlier, um, having absolutely nothing, and then being able to have even um, like that, quote unquote coffee yeah. must have been like a lot of this amazing. Was, yeah, like a lot of this was, like, even after the one day of having a, of having freedom, um, it, it kind of just went from there. <laughs> and just to wrap up, like. Uh, a guy called um, Alexander Zinchenko uh, wrote there were a lot of uh, other things going on. Yeah. Um, but not, but there were none other in which that it was so clearly the case that what initially appears to be a hopeless defeat can be transformed into a longer-term victory. Yeah, I mean, it's that um, lose the battle, win the war um, yeah. sentiment. So, yeah. Uh, and he also finished up with saying that um, Kenge, a revolt of love, uh, was one of those historical steps in which, in the end, led to independence. Love destroyed the USSR. Love for freedom. So that's my. So yeah, that's my story of the King yeah. Uprising. I think I'm not gonna lie. My favorite bit was the part of people getting married. The prisoners marrying each other. <laughs> that's really sweet. Hmm. Like uh, it's a really interesting one. Yeah, like, definitely, definitely. It's not one I'd actually heard of like, no, until like, this week. Same. I was like. Yeah, I especially love the whole thing of... Um, it's definitely a part of gulags that you don't hear about, at least. No, like, I love the whole I thing know. of the culture and the government um, popping up within the prison. Yeah, that's what stuck out to me. That's the reason I did it. Yeah. People are, like finally getting to be humans and acting like them and being, I guess, somewhat civilised within the prison environment. Yeah. Like, as, as opposed to being treated like... Probably like beasts, essentially. That's essentially how it works. Yeah. Um, like I said, it was... like. A gulag is just a forced labour camp. <laughs> like, yeah, it's just it's interesting to see the transformation between the dehumanisation of Paul and then how 
those same people react to their freedom. Yeah. Um, but anyway, we'll uh, cut to music and be back with an yeah. outro. And we are back. So, um, Hannah, do you want to say anything before we head off? Do you want to plug anyone? Or? Um, I don't have anything to plug, but I'm um, part of the University of Birmingham's uh, LARP Society. So if anyone's interested in LARP, we do the fantasy fighting LARP, and we do um, like the less fighting, more actual role-playing LARP. At the moment, we're doing um, World of Darkness, which is the vampire-themed one. Yes. Um, and um, we're doing the Mystery Masquerade Ball soon, which is going to be fun. Um, cool. So... Let me think. I don't know what you think. What I need to do now. Um, Anyone you need to plug? Probably. <laughs> but yes, shout outs. Um, Nox Arcana for our intermission music. Um, some podcasts I've been listening to. Um, let me think. Um, oh, actually, no. I'm, I'm gonna, I know who I'm going to shout out to. I'm going to shout out to uh, Ignorance Was Bliss uh, and Based on a True Crime because I got sent some goodies in the mail this week from them uh, all the way from the US so exciting yeah with like some stickers um, um, uh, Kate from Ridicus was Bliss all sent me a key um, which is yeah it was like, a little bit unnerving when I, when I saw <laughs> when I saw the uh, postage stamp which, which said um, included k- key like a key like, like a key to a lock yeah, key yeah like it said included one key and I didn't know who it was from at first and I was like international shipping and it's a key Hmm. <laughs> are, you gonna, like, are they trying to frame you? <laughs> Maybe. Um, no, thank you for that anyway. Um, so, um, yeah, that was actually really cool. I've now got some new stickers for my laptop as well from them. Um, which, yeah, they're on, they're, your, your stickers aren't currently on the laptop, guys. Um, what else? What else? What else? What else? What else? Social media. Um, we have Facebook at Blood and the Rocks. Uh, Facebook.com slash Blood and the Rocks. And there's also a group, uh, Facebook group, which is they like, which is a bit more involved. And we, you know, have a discussion thread up each week and stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, all right, okay. At some point, I'll put in some. Uh, I might occasionally put in some other bits and pieces uh, when I feel like it. I, I am not a organised man. <laughs> um, what else? What else? Um, Twitter at the Bloody Rocks. I think about that one. It's your own name. <laughs> um, and we have. Email at uh, botrpodcast at gmail.com. Everything. Um, oh, I normally do a cool thing of the week. What, what have I enjoyed this week? Um, well, I've been listening to Witchcraft a lot recently. They're pretty neat. I've just, I just discovered them like a like, couple of days ago, and I've, I, I really like their, their album Legend. What type of music is it? It's, um, let's see. Let's see what Spotify has to say about it on the, on the about thing. Okay. Spotify calls them a Swedish retro doom psych folk band. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Um, it's called so, Witchcraft. Yes, um, like Legend is the is my favorite album. So also, far. wait, their band members had really cool names. There was like what? There's Magnus, um, Rocky Eriksson, Rocky, mm. Rocky. Those are great names. Yeah, uh, yeah, some good shit right there. Um, and I think on that, that's, that's probably everything. I, I normally forget something, but it's fine. You can add it in later, it's fine. <laughs> I won't, I won't, no. <laughs> You'll like, upload it, someone goes, where's this bit? And you're like, oh yeah. <laughs> uh, no, no, no one's going to say anything because at this point they're used to it. 
Like, um, at, th- at this point, I, I pr- pretty much every episode I forget something. They're switching it up, keeping everyone on their toes. Pretty much. We should, like, we should make it a game. Be like, <laughs> <laughs> try and figure out what I've missed. <laughs> oh, I know what I've got. What? Um, yeah, so, um, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. That actually generally helps out. And um, I just remember something else I forgot to, I was going to do. I was going to read out a couple of reviews. Oh, okay. I'm I'm doing well. <laughs> I'm doing also, so well. Also, touch wood, it stopped snowing for the moment. Oh, man. I'm... I can see sunlight. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully that just means it melts. This is England. We don't get the sun very often. <laughs> <laughs> it's decided it needs to chill for a bit. Um, but, yes, yeah, so. Cool. So, we've got a couple of reviews to read out. Um, then we'll sign off. Hey. So, uh, we've got um, Chelsea from Based on a True Crime on the 1st of March. Um, set in five stars. Um, awesome pod. Actually has an amazing voice. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and I love the mix of topics that branches out from just true crime. Keep up the great work. Um, That's very lovely. Yes. Apparently Americans like my voice. <laughs> I think it's like Americans have a thing for British voices. But if you hear like a proper British voice, it's like, Oi, mate! You wanna go, mate? <laughs> I'll bash your fucking head in. <laughs> that's, that's the most British saying I can think of, actually. <laughs> you cheeky bugger. You start in. <laughs> oh, man, but yes. So, and then we have um, Pepper Ashley, who's from a podcast. I think she's from That's Weird podcast. If not, I will find out and I'll let you know next episode. <laughs> um, but um, who's who wrote? Who has the best title for for a view, which was B O N R. Doing a five star review, and honestly, I was I was I was so happy that I, like when I saw it on night, it was the funniest thing. <laughs> like um, who's uh, who wrote? Uh, so intriguing. Who doesn't love listening to a man with a fantastic accent talk about all things creepy and criminal? Um, and then finally, Kate from Ignorance Was Bliss, who wrote a killdozer question mark question mark <laughs> from that killdozer episode, um, which I, that was with um, that was with Connor. Um, that, that was episode titled Bulldozers and Hysteria. Yeah, so she wrote a killdozer question mark question mark um, five star. Uh, fab- fabulous storytelling with a rotar uh, ro- rotating. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fabulous storytelling with a rotating case of co-hosts. Well, actually, uh, well, well, actuated by anchored. <laughs> <laughs> well, actuated by anchored. <laughs> Are you currently anchored? <laughs> I'm not sure. I don't think I am. Well, apparently, like, I'm glad it's coming up to the end because I think I'm losing it. <laughs> Let's try it again, shall we? From okay. the top. <laughs> Fabulous storytelling with a rotating cast of co-hosts, well anchored by Akshay. The key is that... The key. Hey. Thank you for the key. <laughs> <laughs> um, the key is that there is solid research underneath the humour, and there's serious humour amidst the intensity of the topics. Worth a listen. So. Uh, I agree. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Only slightly biased. <laughs> um, but yeah, thank you so much for reviewing... Um, and anyone else, if you do reviews, I will also read them out. Um, I really, I really enjoy reading them. Uh, they do kind of help me out as well. Like, um, and on that, I think we can finally sign off. Yeah, sounds um, good. So, uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, don't forget to tell your friends. Uh, I'll see you next week.
Hannah waved. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Forget they can't see me. <laughs>